Well, why don't you go ahead and take out, well, keep your Bible out. You probably got it out and keep your thumb right there in Ephesians chapter 3. Because we're going to get there in a second. I'm going to dig into this prayer. But I want to tell you a story first. Several years ago, my dad and I went to a lecture given by the New Testament scholar um, N.T. Wright um, at the Lanier Theological Library in Houston. And he had just written, he calls it his big book on Paul. And it is a big book. It comes in at over five pounds. When you measure a book by weight, you know, it's a big book. Five pounds, 1,700 pages. And uh, his, his presentation that evening was to give us the basic thesis of the book, which was this, that the Apostle Paul was the first and is the greatest Christian theologian who ever lived. And I got good news for y'all. It can save you 75 bucks and more than 30 hours of your time. I mean, we've seen enough already in Ephesians to know that's true. Man, Paul is a brilliant theological mind. He has such insight into the mystery of God. It's amazing, isn't it? But the thing that's jumped out to me the most about Paul, as we've been studying through this letter, is not his theology, but his life of prayer. And it, it seems like every page has some kind of prayer from Paul. In fact, uh, you could kind of say that the first half of Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 is bookended by prayer. I don't know if you all remember way back when, I think it was June 14th, we looked at the prayer Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. It was a prayer of blessing to God. He said, blessed be the God and Father. No, that's Peter. He said, blessed be God, something like that. But it was a prayer of blessing. And he blessed God for all the blessings he'd poured out on his people through Christ. And after the prayer of blessing, he offered a prayer of thanksgiving for the Ephesians and the work that God had performed in them and causing them to be raised up with Christ and all those things that we've studied so far. And here at the end of chapter 3, we see another prayer. But it's not a prayer of blessing. It's not a prayer of thanksgiving. Instead, it's a prayer of intercession. He bows his knees before the Father on behalf of the Ephesians. And this morning, as we work our way through the prayer that Mike uh, read for us just a few minutes ago, we're going to see why the brilliant Paul, greatest theological mind who ever lived, wasn't able to just dazzle or teach his friends into spiritual maturity. But instead had to get on his knees and pray for them. So what we all need, if we want to grow spiritually, is an ever-deepening knowledge of God's love for us in Christ. And so that's what we're going to see this morning. And I hope by the time we're done, you're going to be inspired, yes, inspired to pursue that same love yourself in prayer. So we're going to look, get there. But first, we need to recognize where this prayer sits in the letter. I kind of think of this as zooming out and seeing the forest instead of the trees. Because the first half of Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3, really deals with the deep mysteries of God that have been worked out practically and personally in the lives of the, Ephesians, the Ephesian Christians. You remember, uh, he told, Paul told the Christians in verse 4 of chapter 1 that God had chosen them in Christ. In verse 5, that he had predestined them to adoption as sons. He told them that he'd redeemed them by the blood of his son Jesus, and he'd made them alive together with him, and raised them with him, and seated them with him in the heavenly places. And then God took these individually chosen, predestined, redeemed, and saved people, and united them together in the church. 
That's the first half of Ephesians. The second half of Ephesians, chapters 4 through 6, is going to be Paul's instructions on what a person who's experienced all that blessing and all that salvation, redemption, what kind of life a person like that should live. The life before God in the church where we forgive each other, love each other, build each other up. Our life in our homes where we relate differently to one another than people do in the world. And our life in the world. But the hinge between the theology and what we all really want to hear, come on, we just need something practical. The hinge between theology and practice is this prayer. It's like Paul knows that unless he prays, all this brilliant theology is going to go one e in one ear and out the other. And so he does. He prays this prayer. And the first thing I want you to see this morning is Paul's posture in prayer. Because it shows us that spiritual growth depends on God's work in us. Spiritual growth depends on God's work in us. Let's look at verse 14 together. You there? Amen. Amen. All right. Sounds good. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. We're going to just pause right there. Because the posture of Paul's prayer is interesting. I mean... This is Paul, remember, N.T. Wright says, the most brilliant theological mind who's ever lived. And yet when he gets ready to pray, his body gets in on the action. He kneels before the Father. See, bowing or taking a knee is a, a symbolic gesture, not one that many people do in their personal prayer times. Maybe you sit in your chair, maybe you stand. This was common for, in the first century for people to stand and pray. But Paul says he bows his knees before the Father. I like the way Eugene Peterson says it. He says that kneeling is an act of voluntary defenselessness. Because while I'm on my knees, I can't run away. I can't assert myself. I place myself in a position, and I love this, of willed submission, vulnerable to the will of the person before whom I'm bowing. You think about the night ready to kneel before his king and take on this oath of loyalty. And what, what does the king do? He takes the sword and symbolically places it on the kneeling knight's shoulders, saying, hey, I could kill you if I wanted to. Your life is in my hands, but I accept your vow of loyalty. See, as Paul prepared to lay out this life of faithfulness in chapters 4 through 6, he knew that if his friends were going to grow up to be the mature Christian people he wanted them to be, it wasn't going to be because of him. It was going to be because God was at work. This act of prayer and the posture of kneeling was an admission that unless God got in on the action, all of Paul's teaching and theologizing were going to be fruitless. I mean, after all, we look at the Apostle Paul's life and we see the example of humility. We, we saw it in depth last week. He called himself the least of all the saints. I mean, Paul was no self-made person. You know what I mean by that? I mean, we, we value and admire the person who takes on the initiative to better themselves financially, educationally, socially, and spiritually. These are the people who believe that spiritual growth and progress in Christ is attainable if only they put their mind to it and say no to the right things. I'm guilty of that. But the Apostle Paul wasn't a self-made saint. I mean, this is the man who said, whatever gain I had, I counted it loss for the sake of Christ. 
Paul knew that if these Ephesians were going to grow into Christ-like maturity, it was going to be because the same God who chose them, predestined them to adoption, saved them, redeemed them, raised them up with Christ, was going to work in them. So spiritual growth depends on God's work in us. But Paul goes on in his prayer, and we see that this spiritual growth begins internally. We'll read verse 14 again. Uh, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, if kneeling was Paul's posture in prayer, here we have Paul's petition in prayer. And it's totally counterintuitive. Because I'm trying to stay on top of things. I know what's coming in Ephesians 4 through 6. And I know how high of a bar Paul is going to set for the church and and for you and me. Uh, He's going to call us to forgive each other, which is really difficult. He's going to call husbands to love their wives sacrificially. He's going to call wives to lovingly submit to their own husbands as of the Lord. He's going to call the whole church to stand firm against the scheme of the devil. And were it not for the grace of God active in our lives, these would be impossible tasks. And so if I were Paul, I wouldn't really beat around the bush like he does. Uh, Instead, I'd go before God with a prayer like this. Lord, help them forgive each other. Help the husbands sacrificially love their wives. Help the women submit to their own husbands. And help them all stand firm against Satan's schemes. But that's not the prayer Paul prays. His petition is different. Did y'all see that? (laughs) Y'all think we've got to worry about the devil. We also have to worry about these crazy flies. But that's not the prayer Paul prayed. His petition went deeper than merely the external behavior. He asked for God to strengthen the Ephesians by his spirit in their inner being. Now this strengthening, this empowering of the spirit is kind of a new idea in the letter to the Ephesians. Uh, But it's prevalent throughout the New Testament. Paul talks about the people who live by the spirit in Romans 8, the people who walk in the spirit in Galatians 5. Uh, He even prays a blessing over the Romans at the end of his letter to him. He says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Of course, this empowering of the Spirit was what Jesus promised his own disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. Right? This is the strengthening and empowering function of the Holy Spirit. It's His work in our lives. We know that He empowers us to do what pleases God. And yet, it's a new idea in Ephesians. I mean, already Paul has talked about the Holy Spirit five times. And this is what he says. He says, The Spirit's the one who seals believers in Christ, in Ephesians 1.13. It says He gives us access to God, in Ephesians 2.18. That He indwells the church as a temple, Ephesians 2.22. And probably most importantly, he says that the Spirit gives us knowledge of God. That's Ephesians 1.17. If you take all that together and summarize it, you could say that when Paul thinks about the Holy Spirit so far in this letter, what he has in mind is the way the Holy Spirit brings about a personal connection between us and God. 
It's the language of intimacy and fellowship, knowledge, relationship, communion. The Holy Spirit brings us into God's presence. And yet here Paul says that he's asking God to strengthen those Christians by his Spirit in their inner being. So I've been trying to figure it out. How do you take this fellowship idea that the Spirit brings about fellowship between the Christian and God and the empowering function of the Spirit that Paul brings up here in Ephesians chapter 3 and throughout the rest of the New Testament? How do you bring those things together? Well, I don't know if you noticed, but the ESV helpfully shows us what the result of the strengthening is. I don't, maybe you noticed verse 15. It says, Paul prays that God would strengthen them according to the Spirit and their inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. In other words, Paul prays that God would look on Christians. Maybe some Christians in this room need to hear this. That God would look on the Christians whose heart is kind of full of doubt. It's weak in their faith. That he would give them an extra measure of his spirit to strengthen them and help them believe that they aren't outside of God's view, that they aren't forgotten, but rather he still cares about them and has even given them his son to dwell within them by faith. All those things that I pitted against each other aren't pitted against each other at all, but Paul prays that God would empower them to have fellowship with God, that Christ would be more real and present to them than he was before. So the strengthening of the Spirit is for the purpose of having fellowship with Christ in their hearts. You know, it's almost like the Apostle Paul knew that the biggest problem in our lives wasn't going to be the bad behavior out here. The things we see, the things that get us into trouble with our families or at work or with our neighbors. That we had a problem inside. And until God fixed the problem inside, the external that he's going to talk about in chapters 4 through 6 will never get in line. Of course, this hits on what Jesus hammered home to his disciples over and over and over, the importance of the heart. I mean, Jesus was used to seeing people who seemed religious on the outside, but who internally were far from him. He said in Matthew 15 of them, he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He saw that their obedience was really a cover for wickedness, as if the walls of the tomb had been whitewashed to try to cover up the rotten corpses inside. That's why he said in Matthew 15, 18, that it's what comes out of a person that proceeds from the heart and defiles them. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. And these are the things that defile a person. See, Paul knew that if we were going to grow up into Christ, he couldn't just come directly at it and say, you guys get your act together and start living right. He knew that it depended on God's work inside of them to remake their hearts, to strengthen them by his spirit and their inner man so that Christ could dwell in their hearts through faith. And having Christ dwell in their hearts lay that foundation of love on which a faithful life could be built. And that's what he goes on to say in the second half of verse 17. If you're still there, you can look with me. He says that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness 
of God. You see, here we see that spiritual growth depends on an ever-deepening knowledge of God's love for us in Christ. This last half of the, uh, this verse, that you being rooted and grounded in love, there's debate about whether this is a continuation of Paul's petition, as if he's praying parallel ideas that, number one, God, I want you to strengthen them by the Spirit in their inner man, and number two, I want Christ to dwell in their hearts through faith, and three, I want you to root them and ground them in love. And it could be. But as I studied, I came to believe that this is really the purpose of Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. See, Paul knows that if God's going to flood their hearts with the Holy Spirit and strengthen their inner man so that Christ dwells in their hearts through faith, the purpose of that will be a life built on the love that God has for them in Christ. Now, of course, Paul's already described the love of God in this letter. Maybe you remember back to chapter 1, that it was in love that God adopted us as sons. And in our memory verse for this week, we memorized that it was because of God's great love with which he loved us, that he raised us with Christ. We can easily see those verses and identify with them. I mean, we've been singing all these songs about the wonderful love of God. We hear our mocking voice call out among the scoffers. We know it was our sin that held Jesus there. We can never really comprehend that love. Of course, we think of the, the end zone passage, you know, the, the guy in the end zone at the Super Bowl, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. 1 John 3, 1, See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And that's exactly what we are. I mean, this is the love of God that over and over in the New Testament is held up for us to just sort of marvel and wonder at. We can never comprehend it. But in asking God to give these Ephesians an ever-deepening knowledge of this love, Paul's praying that they would know the theological truths that he's already outlined in chapters 1 through 3, but that they would become real in their personal experience. You know, doctrinal knowledge can often be the thing we sit on the shelf of the curio cabinets in our mind. They're great facts, like trinkets that you can look at and remember and think about sometimes, but they stay behind those glass doors. They never really serve any function. But what Paul is praying is that everything he's told them about God's love for them would be felt and believed and lived out. You see, Paul's goal is not simply that they would know more. It would be easy to say that. I mean, that is kind of what it says, right? To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So God, just help them know the love. Help them accumulate some more facts, some more tidbits of interesting information about how you care for them. No, he wants them to know it, to really know it where it works itself out in their personal lived experience. And so Paul prays that God would fill them with the love that he has for them. And by being filled with that love, they would grow to be filled with the fullness of God. I love this image. I tried to come up with some object that I could hold up and, and illustrate this point. But instead, I've just, in my mind, had the circle with arrows running into it over and over. Because really what Paul wants us to do is to think about the way God's loved us and to believe it, to know it's true, that God really does love me this way. 
and to allow that to drive us to want a deeper knowledge of him. And in pursuing that deeper knowledge of him, all we do is just realize how much he loves us. And so it fills us up again. And this is the endless cycle that Christians are on. I love F.F. F. Bruce, the commentator from the last century, put Paul's prayer like this, that he wants us to grasp God's love, not as an achievement of one moment, but as the pursuit of a lifetime. I'm, I'm going to uh, rebuke this fly. <laughs> but let me say it again, because I really want you to hear this. Okay, so what Paul is praying is not that they would know it as in the achievement of one moment, but that they would pursue that knowledge as the whole course of their lives. And if they can do that, day by day, moment by moment, dwell on the experiential, lived-out knowledge of God's love, eventually they will attain to spiritual maturity and they will be filled with the fullness of God. And so Paul's intercessory prayer, offered up by a brilliant theologian, is intended to take all these truths and put wheels on them so they make sense in the everyday life that we're living. His posture shows us that spiritual growth is a product of God's work, not ours. His petition stresses that spiritual growth begins internally as we're strengthened by the Spirit in our inner man to have Christ dwell in our hearts through faith. And his purpose is that we'd have an ever-deepening knowledge of God's love for us in Christ that would compel us towards spiritual growth every day for the rest of our lives. If he is the most brilliant theologian who ever lived, if he knew God in the way that he appears to know God, I want to follow Paul's example. I want to take note of his approach to spiritual growth and maturity. Next time, uh, maybe not next week, but maybe the week after that, we're going to see in Ephesians 4.13 that this whole goal, the whole goal of the Christian life is to attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And the only way we can achieve that is by depending on God. So this morning, we're getting to that practical section of the sermon. The first thing that I think we draw out of this is that we need to cultivate a life of dependent prayer. We need to cultivate a life of dependent prayer. Now when, I, uh, when we first launched into this series, I asked some folks in our church, Sunday school teachers and other people, to read through this past, the, the letter and to write down some of their thoughts and some of their questions and uh, to give it back to me so I could, as I'm going, keep those things in mind. And one sister, I won't name her name, I won't embarrass her, but she hit the nail on the head with this passage. She says, this is such a beautiful prayer. What can I even say about it? Sometimes I pray it as my own. Now that's the right approach to applying this passage. To pray it as our own. Since spiritual growth begins in our hearts as God works in us to give us an ever-deepening knowledge of God's love, when we see areas of our lives that are out of alignment, maybe y'all can, uh, can relate. When I see stuff in my life I don't like, I sit down and I devise an action plan. Well, this is what I need to do first. And if I download an app on my phone, it'll keep me accountable and I can check off the boxes and I can make sure I don't do that thing that I don't want to do. But that's not how Paul goes about it. Instead, he got down on his knees and prayed. 
If we recognize that our main way of going about solving behavioral problems in ourselves, in our kids, or in the people we work with, is to convince ourselves that we can punish it out of them. Just put them in timeout. That'll solve the problem. Or we can devise an action plan for ourselves. Or we can manipulate. We'd never say it that way. We can adjust our behavior around our neighbors so they do what we want them to do rather than the thing we don't want them to do. Then we'll solve the problem. But Paul shows us that's totally wrong. It has to begin in dependent prayer. I mean, Paul put it like this in Romans 12. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So seek God to have your mind transformed and renewed. And as a result, you'll be able to test and discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So let me ask you, do you want to be more like Jesus? you want to transform mind? you want Christ to dwell in your heart through faith? Then make it your daily habit to pray for that. Don't just pray. This is how I pray. Lord, help me respond better when I'm tired. Or help me be patient with my kids. Instead, I should pray this. This is more like Paul. God, help me to know your love for me so that I can love difficult people. Father, help me see just how patient you are with me when I'm stubborn and when I disobey so that I can respond to my kids as you'd have me respond. And when your prayers sound like that, when my prayers sound like that, I'll be well on my way achieving the spiritual growth that Paul's talking about. But the second practical point that we see from this passage is that really the Christian life, coming to faith in Christ and growing up into spiritual maturity in Him, is really all about receiving the love of God. And there's no better way to summarize it than what we did earlier in John 3.16. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That is love. And it is. It's hard to believe that God would love us like that. It's incomprehensible. It goes beyond all knowledge. Why would he, knowing me like he does, seeing the things I've done, seeing the things that have been done to me, why would he love me like this? But this morning, you need to know. The road to becoming the person you want to be, the person God created you to be, begins right here. Believing that God does love you. That nothing can change that. It's a choice He made. Not depending on anything you've done, but just as an overflow of His kindness and compassion on you as one of His creatures. He loves you with an unending love. A love that knows no heights or bounds. A love that goes on and on and on. Like the old hymn. If the seas of ink were filled and the skies of parchment made, where every man on earth, where every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, those stretched from sky to sky. God loves you in ways that we'll never comprehend. Do you know God's love like that? Like the Apostle Paul who said in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He characterized his ministry, 2 Corinthians 5, like this. The love of Christ controls us. 
the love Christ has for us controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul was convinced of God's love for him, and that changed everything about him. He left behind a life. He'd, cl he'd climbed a ladder as high as you can imagine. He was a self-made man, looked upon as a faithful man among the people of Israel. Do you know God's love like that? Have you come to the place where you're willing to leave it all for the God who loved you like this? This morning, I feel compelled to follow the theologian and pastor, Paul, in his prayer. My prayer for you is that you would know the love of God. That you'd know the love Christ has for you. The love the song sings, Jesus loves you, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones and grown ones too belong to him. You're weak, but he's strong. He loves you. Receive his love. Believe it. Allow it to change the way you live your life. This morning, maybe you need to follow Paul's example too. And you need to get on your knees before the Father from whom every family on earth derives its name. And you need to say, Father, I believe that you love me. But help me believe it even more. Take away my shame, my guilt. Help me believe that all the broken people around me who've done me wrong, who claim to love me but used me, don't give me the template for your love. Help me to see the love that you've shown to me in your son by sending him to die on the cross for my sins. Help me believe it and live it. And this morning, if you need somebody to encourage you, to help you figure out what that means, email me, brad at cbcluling.com, or fill out the Connect card and let me know. There's a church full of people who want to see you know God's love and experience its transforming power in your life. So church, I'm praying for you that you'll know God's love, that that love will work itself out in the way we treat each other and the way you treat your family, which we're going to see next week. Will you pray with me?